50 seasons of New York Islanders hockey. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. A once-in-a-lifetime celebration. Oh, my goodness, Ryan Pollock saved the game! This is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome you into Talkin' Isles, the New York Islanders' official interview-based podcast presented by Betway. I'm Greg Picker, the radio color commentator for the team, joined alongside by the director of digital, Corey Wright. You can also hear Corey on the radio pregame and intermission shows. And Corey, we bring on someone who plays your favorite position in hockey, a goaltender in Jamie McLennan. Well, Jamie McLennan has a hockey life well-lived, one that took him from Western Canada to Long Island to Capital District and even all the way as far as London and Asia. So a lot of fun getting to talk to him about his various stops. Uh, Oddly enough, probably the most uh, stable or consistent part of his hockey life was Butch Goring, who coached him in a variety of places. So uh, some really good stories from Jamie about Billy Smith, Butch Goring, and like I said, a hockey life well lived. And we'll take it away with Jamie McLennan. We now welcome in Jamie McLennan to the Talking Isles podcast. I should say Jamie Noodles McLennan. Can you just give us the backstory of how that became your nickname? Uh, it's not a sexy story, although I wish it was, uh, in junior hockey and keep in mind, I'm 51 years old. So in junior hockey, you're riding buses, especially out West, the Western hockey league. There was like one plug in on the bus. There's no smartphones. There's no Twitter. There's no, nothing, no, nothing to keep you, uh, occupied other than board games and, and maybe a VHS, uh, player on, on the bus. But we used to stop at what I'd call this like crappy little, you know, greasy spoon places on the way to a game. So you're on a eight hour bus ride. You'd, you'd stop at around noon or one o'clock to, to have lunch. And you're stopping at like some places where it's like Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes and, and some pretty heavy, greasy food. So I'd always feel like, you know, halfway through the second period, it would all be sitting in my throat. I've had like heartburn. So what I did is I would bring a crock pot on the, the bus and just make like, craft dinner like literally craft mac and cheese and instead of going in to get heartburn from all these places like ponderosa steakhouse and bonanza places out west in canada so some of the guys would start staying on the bus so i'd ended up to a point where i'd be making pasta or noodles for everybody else and the nickname kind of stuck with me it wasn't like i say it's not a sexy story but it's actually true i just i did it from a standpoint i just always felt that pasta was easier to eat before the game instead of a heavy greasy steak so that's how it stemmed and and the minute that you say hey i don't like that nickname people double down on it so that's pretty much what happened well before we get into the next question when you got a crock pot on the bus i mean are you just sitting next to that thing is that a good way to get no seat partner when you're on the bus for you know <laughs> 20 hours going from brandon to somewhere well keep in mind here's the other thing the one plug-in would be like near the roof. So you had like a rack. I'd have to have like the crock pot, like on the rack where guys' bags and clothes clothes were. So it wasn't even like, it's probably like a fire hazard nowadays and stuff like that. But I mean, it was just such a weird dynamic looking back on it. And say, say we had a shorter trip. For example, we played in Medicine Hat, which was two hours away, an hour and 45, or Swift Current, which was three and a half hours away. I would make craft dinner at home in a, and put it in a giant Ziploc bag and then bring it and eat out of it on the way you know, to the game type of thing. So it was a bunch of different ways depending on the length of the trip. But 
again, it's uh, nowadays guys are so into nutrition, so into, you know, shakes and all that. And there's so much more resources, but again, I, I'm talking where I played junior hockey, like 33 years ago, there, there wasn't a lot going on as far as technology back then. Now you're probably talking most, mostly about the left bridge days, but you also started your junior career in Spokane with a head coach named Robert Butch Goring. You played with for Butchie in, in junior and then a whole lot of different stops as a pro as well. What did you learn from a guy like Butchie? It's funny because, you know, Butch and I have become full circle. He's in the broadcasting uh, game and, you know, I've always loved Butch. You're right. I had him in Spokane. Crazy enough, one of my still very close friends was Travis Green on that team who, you know, Greeny played for the Islanders and Greeny and I obviously have ma- remained close. He coached Vancouver last year. So, uh, Ray Whitney was on that team, Patty Falloon. Like, there was a, some really good players that were going to go on to pro careers. But Butchie was a great coach. The weird part about it is that year, I think I was 16 or 17, he got fired early on in the season. And you think you're never going to cross paths with somebody. And then I get drafted by the Islanders. And sure enough, my first couple of years, Butch is the coach there, him and Billy Smith, the goalie coach. So it, it was awesome. Uh, and I saw recently, I, I guess it would have been in November, Butchie, when the Islanders played up in Ottawa. And I don't know if you guys remember this. I got chopped it with, in the face with a stick that night. And Butchie took a swipe at, at me on the, um, the Islanders broadcast. So I was doing the Ottawa broadcast. And there was a hit right in front of the, the boards. Uh, right, I was in between the benches. And Eric Branstrom's stick chopped me right across the face. And Butchie on his broadcast was laughing. He goes, that's the first time I've been around Jamie where he's been hit by something. So we, he had a lot of fun. And that was a sound bite that was certainly played big in Canada. But uh, I've always loved Butchie. I've always loved his approach to the game as far as he was a very cerebral player. And then as a coach, it was the same thing. It was about details of the game. It wasn't so much X's and O's, but he made players better individually because he – he was able to kind of maximize what they had for a skill set. So uh, I have a long history of Butch. I've always loved him as a person. And like I say, as a coach, I had him a couple different times and always had a lot of fun with Butchie. Well, that definitely sounds like the kind of comment that Butchie would make. And we'll make sure to oh, yeah. dig up that audio. <laughs> uh, not that it's followed you around enough, but, you know, going back to growing up in Edmonton, by the time the Islanders and Oilers played back-to-back Stanley Cup finals, I got to think for you, you know, young teen, that's probably prime hockey fan time. So what do you remember about those two Stanley Cup finals? And then, you know, what did it mean, I guess, later to be drafted by the Islanders? Well, you know, growing up, and I say this, and it's so weird now living in Toronto and where, you know, that fan base is dying for success, all of that type of stuff. But like, I remember... Basically, it was like the Islanders and the Oilers in the 80s. Like, that was it. Like, it was two teams that were just – it was a dynasty, and then Edmonton was coming up, and they ended up being that dynasty as well. So, you know, watching Billy Smith and all the stars of the play for the Islanders and then watching Edmonton kind of break through, I was in that – I was, I guess, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old. So it was right in my wheelhouse of, like, okay, watching kind of – the torch being handed from, you know, legends to younger legends that ended up being the Grand Fears and Gretzky's and Messier and you name it. So it was neat. I always tell the story where I had a buddy whose, whose dad was one of the sports writers in Edmonton. So for the Stanley Cup finals, he would get us 
into the building with media passes and we ran film. Back then, the, the photographers would be taking pictures with the actual, like they needed the physical film and they'd take hundreds of rolls of, of pictures and they would hand them to us and we'd have to run them out to the truck printing people so that they could print the pictures for the paper the next day. So Stanley Cup final, you know, Islanders, Edmonton Oilers, the cup gets handed out. I'm at ice level and, you know, the photographer's taking pictures, handing me film. So I'm seeing at that point, Gretzky skating around with the cup and all these like, you know, unique things. So I got an up close personal view of, kind of the baton being passed off between the Islanders and the Oilers. And it was really neat to see, you know, what they were capable of. Um, I always respected the Islanders from afar. And then all of a sudden you get drafted by them and you're like, okay, there's a chance that Al Arbor is going to be my coach. And Bill Torrey just drafted me, Mr. You know, Mr. Torrey. And you're, you're, it's surreal. And then you get to meet them and you're like, man, these people are larger than life. And you're, you walk through the building and there's Clark Gillies and there's Mike Bossy and there's Butch Goring and Billy Smith and Bobby Nystrom. And just, you know, the names go on and on. And you're like, you grew up watching them. So very intimidating, but very cool being drafted by them in 91, because you knew you were drafted to an organization that just had legendary status and the people that were involved in it, they had been there, done that. And you, you did nothing but respect them. So it was really cool. Well, since you mentioned Billy Smith, who was one of the Islanders' goaltending coaches and also worked with you at the American Hockey League level, we know you have an absolutely legendary story involving Billy Smith and a road AHL game. I believe that would have been in St. John's. Can you take us through that story? Yeah, I mean, are we allowed to swear on podcasts? I always, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just use, I won't say, I would just say F word instead of actually saying the word. So here we go. Um, we, we we could beep it out, too. A well-placed beep can sometimes be pretty funny. So if you want to let it fly, enough. we can fix it in post. <laughs> okay, let's let's go through the process, and then we'll figure it out after that. Um, you're right. So I get drafted by the Islanders. My first goaltender coach is Billy Smith, and obviously reputation precedes him, right? This And, like, he is exactly how you would imagine him. He's awesome. He's an intense guy. He's very cerebral, so it's it's more about the mental approach. And I get to training camp, get a little bit of a relationship with him, but not much because he's really worked with the NHL guys. So I get um, sent down to the AHL team and the team, I, I'm joining the team in St. John. And you're right, it's the Toronto Maple Leafs farm team. So it's out on the rock. So for example, you, you fly in there, but you play two games because why fly in and waste the money? So it's, you, you play a Tuesday, Thursday on the rock. And I get out there and I meet the team and you know, Butchie says to me, you're going to play Tuesday night. So no problem. I get out there first period. And as I skate out, there's a mascot, this weird bird. And he's just like standing in my crease. And as I skate towards my crease before the period to scrape it up, he's like, won't move. So I kind of give him like, Hey, get out of here, buddy. And he kind of gives me a push back and we kind of like have an interaction and the crowd starts getting on me and whatever. I don't think much about it. I have a good first period. Great. I skate out for the second period. That bird, this mascot bird is standing in my crease again. And I skate the 200 feet and I'm like, okay, like what's the deal with this guy? He gives me a push. I give him a push. 
There's an interaction. Again, nothing big deal. I'm more worried about stopping pucks. I'm a 20-year-old kid just trying to impress my goalie coach and also play well for my team. So no big deal. End up having a really strong game to the point where I think I got first star. Like I want to say, I, I haven't looked at the game sheet, but it was like in my mind I stopped like 35 for 36 or something like that. But I know I got first star. So after the game, I – come into the dressing room and Billy Smith is sitting in my stall and I, and he's like, not happy. He's kind of got this like scowl on his face and I'm thinking, all right, this is weird. And he goes, I need to talk to you outside. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm really like, keep in mind, I've gotten first star. We've won the game. I feel like I've, I've done everything I can to impress him. And he takes me out in the hallway and he's like, I didn't like what I saw tonight. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't understand. Like I just got first star. And he goes, if that bird is there on Thursday, you run him the F over. And I was like, what? And he goes, like, he shouldn't be in your crease. And he starts reading me the riot act. And I'm like, okay, what, what, like, I just got first star here. And he's like, if he's there Thursday, you run him over. And I was, I, I, at that point, I was like almost in tears. So I go back into the dressing room and he just read me the riot act about an interaction with like a, a mascot, like not anything to do with the game. It wasn't a player that got in my face. It was a mascot. So that was the Tuesday night. The Wednesday, I'm skating around like I didn't sleep well that night. I, I was rattled and I'm thinking, God, I hope Butchie doesn't start me. Like maybe they're just not going to. Maybe they're going to put Danny Lorenz in and it's like, okay, we're going to alternate out there. Butch skates up to me in, the, uh, in practice and goes, you're playing tomorrow. And I'm like, oh my God. Like all I could think about is what am I going to do with this mascot? Like, do am I going to have an interaction with them? Maybe the mascot's not working on Thursdays. Like all of these things are going around in my head to the point where like, I'm not even focused on the game. I'm focused on how do I deal with a mascot? So sure enough, Thursday comes around. And, you know, warm up, I'm kind of on the corner of my eye. I'm looking to see if this mascot's around. I skate out for the first period, and there he is, like, giving me the hex and standing in my crease. And I'm, like, I'm all business, but I'm, I'm just, like, get out of here. Get out of my way. And I allow, like, four goals in the first period. I get rinsed. I should have got pulled. I was terrible. I was in my own head. I couldn't stop the puck. And I swear, and I think this, like, may have been, like, a planned situation. Like, Butchie should have pulled me. Because when you give up four goals in the first period, like, you should get pulled. They left me in there, and I swear it was to see how I would deal with this type of adversity. And sure enough, I skate out for the second period, and there's that mascot standing in my crease, like, 200 feet away, like, giving me the hex. And at that point, I'm like, screw it. So I just skate as fast as I can, as hard as I can, the whole 200 feet, and I run that mascot right over. Like, I just hammer him. And the mascot goes flying into the corner. And in my mind, I'm like, I have no idea if that is like an 80-year-old man in there, a 14-year-old girl. Like, you have no idea who's in that mascot costume. And the crowd is going crazy, and they're yelling at me and throwing things. We end up losing like 7-1 that night. And they left me in for the full, like, touchdown against. And after the game, I'm so dejected. Like, I was so bad. I, didn't, I couldn't stop a puck. I couldn't do anything that night right. And as I skate off, I get into the dress room and Smitty is sitting in my stall and he's got a big smile on his face. And he's like, I need to talk to you. He takes me out in the hallway and he goes, 
that's how you be a man in this league. He goes, that's how you, do, you get respect. He goes, you handled it the right way. I'm like, I just gave up a touchdown. And he's like, it doesn't matter. He goes, that's how you get respect in this league. So basically, you know, there was some swear words in there, but ultimately that was a lesson. It was like you develop respect over your actions. And I thought I played good enough, but the second night I, you know, I gave up a touchdown, but he was happy that I dealt with the, the mascot, put it that way. Well, that's a great story. And going off your time in Capital District, I know Greg and I have looked at this in the past before, but guys on that team like Kevin Sheveldayoff, uh, Tom Fitzgerald, guys who went on to become general managers, Travis Green, like you said, was the head coach in Vancouver for a period of time. I mean, did you have any idea at the time that that team was going to produce so many guys to have real influential positions in hockey down the line? You know what? When I think of Kevin Sheveldayoff, Right away, I think that guy was built for management. He was always cerebral, very smart, very intelligent, very kind person, like very, like a classy, like everything about him kind of oozed like, you know, like a people person. He wasn't a loud mouth. He wasn't, uh, he was just a kind guy who really understood like the game. He worked hard. He was a first rounder that didn't pan out as a player, but I, I always had respect for him. You know, Jeff Finley was on that team too. And Jeff, very high up, I believe, with Detroit's organization and player personnel. Like there was there were some guys, Dean Chanel, I think, was there at one point, and Chinny's the assistant coach in Toronto. So, yes, there was a lot of guys where you're like, you know, you knew what they're capable of as players, but you could tell that they would probably be lifers in the game of hockey. It's nice to see them go on and have success. Like Tommy Fitz is a – is a great, great guy. Really like Tommy, and and I'm happy for him having success in Jersey. And like Chevy's a guy who, you know, I think he's in the right position too. The way that Winnipeg does their business, uh, Chevy's perfect for that scenario. He's built it and really drafted and developed a very good team there. So and Greeny always had. Greeny was kind of like this really highly skilled player that was smart enough to realize what it took to be successful at the NHL level. And then now has translated that as a coach. So uh, looking back on it, there were some great hockey people there and I've still maintained friendships with a lot of them. So it was, it was really neat. Our days in Capital District, which was Troy, New York, is pretty gritty, gritty area up there in upstate New York. It was pretty cool. 93-94 ends up being your first season on Long Island with the Islanders and some big personalities on that team, some big names, obviously Pierre Turgeon, Ray Ferraro, Darius Kasparaitis. So how was it coming to that team and, and fitting in with that group? Because obviously, I mean, Casper, everybody's got a story about him. I've got several stories about Casper. I don't know if any of them could be public though, but I mean, Casper <laughs> was awesome. Like I, I knew nothing about him. And then you meet this, like you said, giant personality who loved, like he loved positive attention. If that made sense. Like he, you know, he came from basically nothing. I remember him telling stories where he grew up like, you know, almost in like poverty or situations where he didn't have a lot as a child. And all of a sudden he's got a little bit of money and he would show up with like this like black leather coat with tassels on it. And I'd be like, what is that? He was like, it's Versace. It's beautiful, Jamie. It's beautiful. Like, and he was funny, like just a big personality, really well liked by his teammates and a pain in the ass to play against. Like, man, did he hit hard, and he'd get underneath the skin of top players. He almost took it personally 
to say we're playing, I don't know, we're playing the, the Rangers and Messier's out there. He chased Messier around the whole night. Like it was, it was almost like a mission for him to get underneath the skin of top players on the other team. And he could hit like a freight train. He was a solid player, but he had a big personality and not everybody liked that, especially on the other team where he would chirp them, but he would also back it up with the physicality. So Casper was great. I've seen him a few times kind of an alumni stuff and he's always kind of just uh, the same personality kind of, joke around and have a little fun. And randomly when I got traded to the Rangers, like, I don't know what it was in 2004, Casper was there, but yeah, I think he was injured kind of near the end of his career. But, uh, you know, you, you, you circle back on some of those memories and that, like he was a young guy who would come over and, and, you know, had some ups and downs, but I was just a kid too. Keep in mind, like, you know, a kid from Edmonton get drafted by the Islanders and all of a sudden you're living out on the Island and you're, you know, you're 20, 21 years old, like there's, there's a lot of firsts for you and you get caught in your own bubble, just trying to worry about what you need to do to, to stay in the NHL. So there was a lot of us, uh, including Ziggy Palfy and Travis Green and Marty McKinnis and Scott Lachance, like all of us were kind of that young group that were kind of learning on the fly. We've heard a few things about the black Versace jacket. Unfortunately, I don't think any photos still exist of it. And <laughs> you bring up Ziggy. What Ziggy stories do you got? Oh my God. Ziggy was, Ziggy was probably one of the most talented players I ever played with in my whole career. And I'm like, I played with Brett Hall, Pierre Turgeon, like, you know, guy, Jerome McGinley, like some guys who are hall of famers and, and Chris Pronger, like, like, but Ziggy had this natural, like he just knew how to play hockey speed and he got a shot and he was this skinny you know, skinny guy from Slovakia with a mullet and, and didn't speak great English. And every word he first learned was swear words. So it was kind of funny. And, you know, but Zig was to this day, when I look back at it, like he was one of the most talented players I ever played with as far as what he could do on the ice. And his attitude was just funny because he was so laid back, but he, he just knew how to play hockey. He was really good at it. And you know, I got to know him and they, I think they asked me, I remember when we went to the minors and we played in Salt Lake city together and, you know, Zig was kind of new to North America, didn't speak a lot of English. So he lived really close to me in the apartments and he became, it was myself and a guy named Derek Armstrong and, and Ziggy, like we all kind of hang out a little bit as he was learning English. And at that point, I, I believe he had his girlfriend over who didn't speak a lick of English either. So it was a huge transition for him. But like hockey, when I look at it, like there's no way when you looked at the frame of, it, of Ziggy that you could believe that this guy could shoot the puck that hard and he could do things on the ice and be strong on the puck considering he's just this tiny kind of small, like meek guy. But man, he was so, so talented. To, to the point years later, I remember he was playing in L.A., and I was sitting on the bench, I was playing in Calgary, and he skated by and he was like yelling at me on the ice. He had, like, had the puck and he was looking over going, noodles! And I'm like, okay, we're in the middle of a game here. And he's like dinking around on the ice. like that. And he would skate to the middle of the ice and look one way and chop the puck and it would go the other way, a perfect pass to his line mates. Like he was just so freakishly talented, but so laid back that it was just, uh, it, was a, it was a treat to see because – you always hear stories behind the scenes of like 
you want to know what people are really like on the bench. Are they dialed in? Are they yelling and screaming? And like Ziggy would be the complete opposite. He'd be like staring at like, a, you know, something on a jumbotron and Butch would be yelling at him, Ziggy, you're up. But he would be late for the shift because he wasn't paying attention. And he was so like, honestly, he was one of the best players I ever played with as far as from a talent level. And that's a guy I wish that I would run into face to face. Like, haven't seen him in years, and, and uh, I would love to catch up with him. Well, whenever we have a, a goalie on, we like to ask them about backing up at the Coliseum because this is not a common thing anymore, but uh, in some of the rinks that were around back then, and especially the Coliseum, there wasn't enough room on the bench for the backup netminder. So you're almost in the crowd with the fans. Any funny stories from just being a backup at the Coliseum, whether it was with the Islanders and then, of course, coming back to the Coliseum as a visiting player? So coming back, so luckily enough, early in my career, I always had this internal argument. I would fight with our own team to be like, I need to be on the bench because I hated sitting in the stands. I just felt like a highly paid spectator sitting there next to a guy with a beer and popcorn. So when it came to the Islanders, uh, I don't know if you go back and look at those early 90 games, like I would sit on the bench kind of right next to Eddie Tyberski and force feed my way right into the corner and just sit there because I hated sitting in the alleyway. So, you know, you go back to it now when we play against the Islanders. Yes, you sit in that, that alleyway. I would always remove myself a little bit farther back because I would either watch on a monitor or stay close enough where I could see the play but not interact with the crowd. I always felt it better for me mentally to be tied into the game and instead of being distracted and going, you know what, like I don't know if I'm talking to this person or this person making a comment, like you feel like you're not, you know, in tune with the game. And you you always felt like you're one groin injury away, one bad goal, one something to being in that game. So you have to be dialed in. Same thing in San Jose. San Jose, you're, you're in that corner. I actually had a monitor underneath the stands that I would sit and watch the game on TV in my gear, but just be by myself. Uh, Montreal, the same thing, um, where you're across from the team, and I'd be back in the alleyway. Although I got caught eating a hot dog one time in my glove because they in Montreal, the Bell Center, they've got these great hot chien shows, they're called. And I was playing for St. Louis, and the camera caught the glove from a weird angle where I actually had a hot dog in my glove, and I was eating it. And Joel Quinville called me out on it when I was playing for St. Louis, so... Well, if you weird... go to Montreal and you don't eat a Bell Center hot dog, then there's something wrong there. So Exactly. You have to have that. I probably shouldn't have had that in the second period during the game. That's on me. But, uh, yeah, I, honestly, there's so many different stories of being a backup. Pittsburgh, the old igloo, you had to sit right there coming out as well. So the interactions with the fans, I enjoyed them, but there were, it was tough because there were things where you, you, know, you want to stay engaged with the game. And I just always felt it was a little tougher when somebody was, was talking to you or the fans were giving you a heck. You know what I mean? Well, a couple of years later, before you depart the island, the team does change its jerseys from uh, what you witnessed back in 1984 in Edmonton when you were at the game to the Fishermen. So you got to wear the Fishermen before departing Long Island. Obviously, they brought it back this year as part of the reverse retro. What was uh, the mood like when you donned those jerseys for the first time? Okay, so I, I, don't, I was asked recently about this, and I, I always apologize to Islander fans because back then I was young. I was 
I guess I could say, you know, you're not as schooled in the history of like the fan base and, and understanding what, you know, what they loved and that. And this, this is way before social media where you can have people weigh in your opinions. You can actually, you, that could sway your opinion when you see how passionate people are. If they like something or dislike it. I, for some reason, liked the jersey because, and, and I, I defend it from my standpoint because I got gear that matched it. So in my mind as a goalie, I'm like, oh my God, my pads look amazing. Everything looks good. It looks nice and consistent. Yes, did it look like, you know, Captain Highliner slash Stan Fischler, you know, a weird, you know, situation with the logo. But I like the colors because, again, I come back to, you know, the, me just feeling good, looking good in my gear. I didn't mean I played well. It just means that I felt good. But that being said, I didn't understand the magnitude of, like, okay, the traditional fan base going, hold on a second here. I grew up with that jersey. We won cups with that jersey, the old school jersey. And now it's a complete polar opposite. And looking back on that, I can understand the vitriol that it comes with. But that, you know, now at 50 years old, I can understand it, but I still like the colors. I like the colors. And I actually, I got sent the other day by the PR guy from the Islanders, because I, I told this story on my show, how I have a room of jerseys at my house, and I never, I wanted to buy the Fisherman jersey, and I went on a website where my authentic one was on there, and they wanted like 800 bucks US for it, and I was like, I'm not paying 800 bucks for my own jersey, and, and you know, I don't love any jersey that much to pay 800 bucks for, so the Islanders PR sent me a fisherman jersey the other day, or a retro jersey, and I'm going to have it like framed to put into my house. So I love the colors now because it's kind of a mix, and they, there's they you know they've kind of married the two. But I do understand, and I I would say this to Islander fans, like I understand the passion towards the the old one, and back then I don't think I understood that, so there was some ignorance on my part. Well, Jamie, before we wrap up, I want to kind of advanced pretty far in your career because you had a couple of international stops one would have been during the lockout to play hockey in the uk and then after your nhl days you played in the asia league so what was it like taking your talents abroad okay so the english league the what it was british national league in guilford it happened kind of a weird thing so i played it at charity game at christmas that year as i was a player rep for I'm trying to remember who but i i i remember playing in a charity game and I broke my hand. Claude Lemieux took a slap shot in a charity game, a one-timer and it hit me and I, I broke a bone in my hand. I'm like, takes a slap shot in a charity game. And, you know, so it, I, I was, I wasn't able to like join a team right away. So it took me a while. And the minute that they canceled the season that year, the general manager of the Guilford flames, who I grew up with from in St. Albert, Alberta, uh, he played there and became the GM. He just called me and he said, hey, why don't you come finish the season out? We'll pay you some cash. But he goes, you get a chance to just play some games and have some fun. Sure enough, I get over to England. I loved it. I was there two months to the day. So 60 days, I put 30 pounds on because all I did was drink beer and eat fries. And, you know, the league wasn't super intense. Like a lot of times guys had day jobs. And then we'd practice at 10 o'clock at night. So you'd sit there all day and then you practice at 10 o'clock at night. Some guys would show up and they'd had a bottle of wine with, with dinner. And then we're practicing for half an hour and then you play on the weekends type of thing. So it was different 
but I, I loved it. It was a great experience and kind of uh, just helped me play, play, you know, that year or get, uh, get a different experience of where I never would have played. And then you mentioned the Asia Ice Hockey League. So the crazy part about that is at the end of my NHL career, I get a call from my agent saying, you know, there's a team in Russia that would like to sign a Magnitogorsk and Metallurg. And so we signed the deal. I go over, I spent two months there, about six weeks, well, about seven weeks. And it's just not a fit. They don't like me. I'm not loving it. You know, Magnitogorsk is not for everybody. It's a pretty gritty city and all of that. Uh, a lot of history there, but it just, it wasn't a fit. So I was going to retire. I get a phone call from one of my best friends who has Japanese descent. And he's been over in Japan for 16 years. And he said, why don't we retire together, come over and, and play for, for my team? It was in the Nippon Paper Cranes. So I don't know if you saw this movie with Tom Selleck years ago called Mr. Baseball. It's basically he goes over and works for a company and plays for the company baseball team. Well, that's exactly what this was. So myself and another guy named Tyson Nash, who's a good friend of mine, I played with him in St. Louis. We go over. And we were there about five months, and I loved every minute of it. The culture was amazing. The hockey was equivalent of both the East Coast League, so it was good hockey. And then there was four teams in Japan, two in Korea, and one in China. So it was like a paid vacation uh, to, while I played hockey. And it was awesome. I developed friendships, to which I still have to this day. And... Uh, yeah, it was a great experience to kind of end my career where I was like, okay, I need to get hockey out of my system. And I knew this was going to be my last year. So that whole last year was a bit weird. I was in, went from Russia, which was really kind of intense and kind of like crazy. Lots of stories on that. Next time, ask me some, next time you guys have me on, ask me some Russia stories because there's some, some crazy ones. Uh, but um, Japan was awesome. We made it to the finals. I ended up retiring with my buddy, Joel. And, uh, and then I went right into my kind of post-life, and that was working with the Calgary Flames and kind of management and scouting and all of that. So, and that transitioned into media. So it was neat, but I, I do say this, like hockey afforded me an opportunity not only to play in a lot of different cities where the NHL and the minor leagues, but, you know, go, like you say, going to England during the lockout – never envisioned living in London for two months. And that was really cool. Uh, the 30 pounds was a little bit rough because I had to really work that off in the summer, but that's, that's self-inflicted, you know, stepping off, <laughs> stepping off the plane and being 226 pounds when I usually play at about 196, that was a little rough, but uh, that was on me. And then uh, the Japan league was awesome. Like I just, uh, I loved everything about it. It was first class. So, and then the hockey was great. So, yeah, I was I was lucky enough to to go into some different countries and experience that, and uh, you know it was it was it was awesome. We had a lot of fun. Thank you, Jamie. This has been a, a treat to hear, and uh, always love hearing your work on TSN as well. All right, well, thanks for having me, and we'll chat soon. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.